Friends, on Tuesday, I went and voted at the Church of the Annunciation uh, here in town. And man, it was like a church reunion. I got to see so many folks. I had about an hour and a half to catch up with everybody. Uh, So it was great to see um, all sorts of folks from our church uh, out and active and participating. And then on Tuesday, I went home and wrote this sermon. I'm guessing that we all have some amount of election fatigue, and, and for good reason, Uh, One thing I I think we can all be glad about is at least there's no more advertisements, right? (laughs) That's like, okay, I'm getting some nods. Very good. Uh, So we're glad about that. Today, roughly half the country is waking up elated because of the results of the election, and the other half is waking up dejected because of the results of the election. Part of the role of being a pastor is to speak into crucial times, and so it's an honor to share this space uh, with you this morning. In 1895... Fitzgerald, Georgia was founded by Civil War veterans from the North and the South. Here's how they set the whole thing up. Streets on one side of the city are named after Union ships and generals. And streets on the other side of the city are named after Confederate ships and generals. And there's one street that runs right through the middle of town. And it's called Central Avenue. Fitting name? In, let's see, I want to get this right. In 1939, Central Avenue United Methodist Church was formed in Fitzgerald, Georgia. I think this is a great picture of the opportunity we have as a church to cross the divides and let the love of Christ be our uniting force. This is easier said than done. We're a nation divided deeply, Republicans and Democrats the wealthy and the poor, the urban and the rural, conservative and liberal, racial majority and racial minority. We live in a time of polarization. It seems sometimes like if if you're not totally with someone that you're automatically against them, like it's all or nothing. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of people living on Central Avenue anymore. So I think one of the greatest challenges that we face in our times as people have moved out to the extreme poles is how do we transcend all the things that divide? How do we remain in relationship with people that we disagree with? My hope today is that as we study God's word together, the model of Jesus will show us that those who disagree don't have to be enemies. Mark chapter 3 contains one of the few times in the New Testament where all 12 of the disciples' names are written together. Kind of a nice little set. Jesus had many more followers who were also called his disciples, uh, which included women, by the way, which was revolutionary at the time. That's one of the things that gets someone crucified. So these 12 are also referred to as the apostles. That's a word that means sent ones. And these were people who learned directly from Jesus and then were sent out into ministry to carry on Jesus' work. So we find all 12 of them together, the apostles, the 12, the scripture will say, here in Mark 3. Now this is kind of a gut check for me. I I could name like 30 NFL wide receivers right now. I'm all into fantasy football. Could name tons of NFL players. I'd have to try pretty hard. I'd have to really think to name all 12 apostles. Uh, what, what about you? C- can you name 12 TikTok follows that you like watching? Can you name 12 Beatles songs? Yeah, me too. 
So maybe some reprioritization would, would help us out. Okay, so here they are. This is Mark 3, 13 through 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus didn't assemble this group randomly. He called to him those that he wanted. He picked them out. Jesus had a strategy. And I believe we can learn a lot from who Jesus chose and some of the details uh, here in Mark 3 give us a glimpse of the type of relationship that Jesus had with his disciples. Like he gave them nicknames. Right, Simon, he nicknamed Peter. In Greek, Petrus means rock. Growing up, I wish I was named something cool like the rock with the last name like Musto. You know what most of my friends called me? Musty. Which is not as cool. Now, if you want to use that, you have to call me Reverend Musty. That's how that's going to work, okay? Do it proper. James and John, nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, also extremely cool. It sounds like a wrestling tag team or something, right? Now, you don't get a nickname that you like from just anybody. That's what your close friends call you. This is how close Jesus was with these apostles, and they weren't just anybody. He handpicked them, which, when we examine the details closer, is extremely convicting, now, there's several of these names we don't get to know very much in the other pages of the New Testament. Philip, Bartholomew, one of the other James, Thaddeus, and Andrew, they show up a few spots in the New Testament, but, but we don't know a ton about them. Uh, but what Scripture tells us about the other disciples, it gives us insight into the intent of Jesus and his blueprint for all who would follow him. So we have Andrew and Peter, the rock, also called Simon. We know they were fishermen, and so were James and John, who were described as the sons of thunder, right? And, 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 and scholars think part of the reason they were called this is, is because of their, pers their fiery personalities, the sons of thunder. So these four apostles, these two sets of brothers, were, were fishermen. These were people who mastered a trade. That's how they made their living. They were laborers. And I imagine it would have been a little awkward. I just love this meme, by the way. It would have been a little awkward when Matthew, the tax collector, joined their ranks. Tax collectors made their living ripping off laborers on behalf of the Romans. A tax collector's salary was whatever he could collect on top of the tax to Rome. So you have Matthew working for the enemy, living in community with Jewish laborers. You think that was tough? I'll bet it was. Then add to the mix, Simon the Zealot. Now, some translations use the word Canaanian. Uh, the Greek word here is kananoi, and it means zealot or Jewish nationalist. This could mean someone who observed Jewish laws very strictly, or it could mean someone who dedicated their life to overthrowing the occupying Romans in Palestine in the first century. Again, you have somebody who's a Jewish nationalist sharing a table, sharing community with someone who's who had worked for the enemy in Matthew. Last and definitely least, we get to Judas Iscariot. 
Now, some people think that this designation of Iscariot, it's kind of a mystery. Some folks think that's an indicator of, of where Judas came from. Other folks think it might have been associated with a form of Sakari. And this was a Jewish secret group of assassins named after the curved blade that they would carry. That's why we have a picture of a knife at church, right? I thought that detail was, was kind of cool and, and wanted to include that. And so these, these Sakari would carry a small curved blade and that's how they would take out their Roman enemies in secret. Now, whether or not that's accurate is hard to say. But here's, how, here's what we do know about Judas Iscariot. That Jesus invited the person who would betray him into his closest circle. I mean, I think there's a danger in us being, you know, if you've been a Christian a long time, we can kind of romanticize this a little bit. Even, even the scripture said Jesus, Judas who would betray him. Jesus knew that and rolled out the red carpet for him. I mean, that is mind-blowing. That's the model of Jesus. Invite your betrayer in close to you. So these are the people that Jesus called to himself. These are the people he appointed to carry on his work. Laborers, tax collectors, hotheads, and political revolutionaries. Friends, Jesus drew a broad circle that crossed divides. Can we? In late October, the two gubernatorial candidates in Utah released an advertisement together. Now, that's, the, that's the, probably the first and last time I'll say the word gubernatorial in a sermon. Uh, that, that's a fancy word that we've selected for people involved in a governorship. So these two candidates in Utah made an ad together. Check it out. I'm Spencer Cox, your Republican candidate for Utah governor. And I'm Chris Peterson, your Democratic candidate for governor. We are currently in the final days of campaigning against each other. But our common values transcend our political differences, and the strength of our nation rests on our ability to see that. We are both equally dedicated to the American values of democracy, liberty, and justice for all people. We just have different opinions on how to achieve those ideals. But today, we are setting aside those differences to deliver a message that is critical for the health of our nation. That whether you vote by mail or in person, we will fully support the results of the upcoming presidential election, regardless of the outcome. Although we sit on different sides of the aisle, we are both committed to American civility and a peaceful transition of power. And we hope Utah will be an example to the nation. Because that is what our country is built on. Please stand with us on behalf of our great state and nation. My name's Spencer Cox. And I'm Chris Peterson. And we, we approve, approve this message. message. Our, there you go. Yeah, uh, so inspirational, right? Uh, our common values transcend our political differences. That was genius to them at the end. We approve this message. I mean, it makes us want to clap. It's just so darn refreshing. And it makes me incredibly sad that this is so novel. I mean, isn't that sad that we're like, wow, look at the decency on display. Good for them. Like, <laughs> it just makes me so sad. These two should be commended for their approach, and I celebrate that they filmed this from Central Avenue. But man, it makes me sad that it's so novel. The level of public discourse in our political sphere is shamefully low. If, if I said some of the things that our elected officials 
have said, people would call for my job if I said that in a sermon. They would. Friends, the expectations for civility in our country currently are so low, I think that, we, that Christians, we, we have an amazing opportunity to fill this void of decency right now. This same group of disciples that Jesus chose in Mark chapter three, he would later tell in John chapter 13, he'd say to them this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And we gotta keep that on the forefront, friends. Jesus didn't say, by this, people will know you are my disciples when you argue on social media. By this, they will know you're with me when you only associate with people who vote the same straight ticket. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples when you belittle your political opposition. No, that, that wasn't any of that. Jesus' command is that we would love one another after his example, which included crossing the divide with folks all over the political spectrum. According to Jesus, the defining characteristic of his followers is love. You don't need me to tell you there's a lot at stake with this election. Everything from how our country is administrated to how our courts will be selected and decided. I know in this congregation we have people who are very passionate about things that aren't just issues to them. These are very personal and affect them deeply and people they love deeply. So please don't hear me saying that we shouldn't have any convictions. That's not what I'm trying to tell you. I'm not saying we should tolerate evil because Jesus wants us to be nice. I do think that we can romanticize Christ's revolutionary call to be defined by love. Just look at the people he drew to himself. Sometimes when you're living on Central Avenue, you can be criticized on both sides and, and people think you're just trying to ride the fence. So here's a concept. Surely we can find an alternative between burning down cities and plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Now what I said I don't believe is a controversial statement. I encourage you to live with conviction and prayerfully consider how God is calling you to live and exercise your political rights. Friends, this is my message to you today. Please don't sacrifice your witness on the altar of politics. Remember Jesus' command that we will be known as his disciples by our love. Now, most of us haven't participated in a riot and aren't plotting currently to kidnap anyone. So what does living on Central Avenue look like? I think there's an internal component and an external component. So just, let's all just do a quick check in our, in, our, in our souls. As you've driven around town these past months and you see a flag or a sign outside of someone's home that may be of a different political affiliation than you, what comes to your mind about that person? About that household? Does that thought reflect that this is someone that Christ died for and calls, you, calls us to love? Have we allowed our partisan, partisan, partisan politics to preempt Jesus' command to love our neighbor? And there's also an external component. And I'm here with you on this. If someone was to survey the way you've talked about the opposing party or people, the things we've said, our social media posts, our texts and emails, 
would they conclude that we clearly love Jesus? In October 6th, 1774, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, wrote this. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, one, to vote without fear reward for the person they judged most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. It's both depressing and refreshing to me that at least this isn't a new problem. That was 1774. That was like, just as we were getting going. I love Wesley's words, and I love that they're applicable hundreds of years later. I fear that living on Central Avenue is a road that's traveled less and less. I think we each have a threshold for, for, for what we'll tolerate or who we'll associate with, and my fear is that that threshold has been shrinking as we draw our lines. So friends, my prayer is that we will be defined by our allegiance to Jesus before our party. Jesus called to him those he wanted. When he chose the 12, he purposely selected people who were natural enemies and drew a circle that crossed the divides. Those who disagree don't have to be our enemies. And friends, if I haven't convinced you of that, then my fellow Christians, I would refer to you how Jesus teaches us to treat our enemies. Let's pray. God, we come to you in need of your grace. There's a lot of hurt in our nation. There's a lot of mistrust in our nation. We ask your forgiveness for the ways in which we've contributed, contributed to this, whether publicly or secretly, spoken and unspoken. God, we admit that our partisan politics can plant a root of bitterness that can compete for our allegiance. We repent of the ways that we have neglected our first love. Today, we proclaim that over and above our party allegiance, we worship you as our king. God, we give you thanks that we have such an incredible country to live in and our opportunities to have a voice in the political process. We admit to you, God, that even in our nation's highest ideals and aspirations as a country, that we all still fall short of your glory. God, may those who feel they've won act with humility. And may those who feel that they've lost act with goodwill. We pray for our leaders. We pray for President Trump, for Vice President Pence, and all who support them. We pray for President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris and all who support them. May all of our elected officials act with integrity, grace, and in the interests of the common good for all Americans. God, in the coming days and weeks, help us to be your representatives. Help us to reflect your great love for us by the way we love others. Where there is suspicion, help us to assume the best. Where there is hurt, help us to heal. Where there is division, help us seek to first understand. Where there is enmity, help us to bring decency. 
God, where there is uniformity, help us to have dialogue and include those that may not be of a like mind in order that our circle of relationships would reflect yours. We ask all these things as your church, which you have called out from among the Republicans and the Democrats, called out from the right and the left and the center, called out the black and the white and the brown. Help our spirits to not be sharpened against those that voted on the other side. God, we want to follow your great command and it's real hard. Help us to love each other as you have loved us. In the name of our first love, our King, the name above all other names, Jesus Christ, we pray these things together as we say, Amen.